We are starting a new series this morning. Um, we've done some announcing of this to kind of help everybody be aware of what was coming. We just finished our verse-by-verse our -verse study through the book of Philippians, and we'll be going back into another study through a book of the Bible. But before that, we wanted to take sort of a little bit of an abbreviated time, three weeks, to address a, a topic. It was on my heart as we were making our way through Philippians, actually since the beginning of the summer, um, that, that I wanted to kind of pause and, and focus on something in particular, and I was seeking the Lord for that, and during worship a few weeks back, God kind of spoke to my heart an outline for these three messages. Does the Lord ever speak to you during worship? He does to me. I know sometimes we come to church and imagine, well, God, he, I, I speak to him during worship, and then, and then uh, he talks to me during the, the teaching of the word, the Bible study. But, you know, he also speaks to us during worship as we wait on him, as we um, look to glorify him. And we're, we're listening during that time. And I really encourage you during worship to enter into that time and, and have hearts ready to receive from him. Uh, I certainly do. It's happened to me multiple times. Well, the subject, of course, for our message is trials, suffering, and hardship. Hope in the valley, God's presence in our trials. Those times in the valleys of life and where and how we can find God in the midst of them. Suffering is a huge part of life, and the Christian life is no uh, exception our experience is one that involves pain and suffering. But the Bible has provided for you and I a very clear and hopeful theology of suffering. Truth as it relates to this subject and how we're called to manage it. Maybe you remember uh, these words of Jesus from John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good Courage, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Job 5, 7, uh, early on in, in the, the work of Job's friends, encouraging him, one of them uh, said, yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. As surely as heat rises, we will encounter trouble in this life. But how we manage that trouble, how we walk through life experiencing that makes all the difference the perspective that we choose how you and i respond it makes all the difference hard times and trouble they can be our undoing uh, they can wipe us out there are those who simply give up and walk away during those valley experiences we've we've known people that have reacted in that way maybe maybe you've struggled uh, with that yourself Jesus told us to expect that in, in, uh, as we preach the gospel. Do you remember the parable of the sower and the seed? Of course, I'm sure that you do. It's in Mark 4 and Matthew 13. Uh, Jesus was offering uh, kingdom eternal truths using stories and, and ideas and concepts that people were familiar with, the parables. And, and he gave one that related to uh, farming, the, the idea was there was this farmer sowing seeds into his field. But as he did so, some seed fell to the wayside, the road that was nearby. Others in rocky areas, somewhere there were weeds growing, and yet some still into good soil. Jesus said, a sower went out to sow. Mark 4, 14, the sower sows the word. 
the work of the sower, the one that's proclaiming the gospel, the truth of God's word, they're, they're, they're sharing it like seed. And in verse 20, excuse me, of Matthew 13, Jesus, having illustrated all these different places where the seed falls, representing the hearts of the hearers, he said, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. We know what that is. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. The word didn't prosper or it was rejected in the lives of those represented by the, the wayside and the thorns for a few reasons. But the stony places, it was because they weren't ready for trials. Have you shared the Lord with somebody before or had a friend come to Christ and, and then they encountered some difficulty, the car breaks down, the spouse gets upset with them, et cetera, et cetera, the, uh, their health goes sideways, and, and they respond effectively by saying, I, I thought, I, I just gave my life to the Lord, what's going on here? I thought, I, I thought God loved me, he cared about me, he had a plan for my life, this was not the plan I had in mind. Too many come to Christ expecting he's going to rescue them from all of their problems instead of from judgment for their sin. They're, they're more concerned about deliverance from problems in this life than from an eternity separated from God in the next. And when that doesn't happen, a life where trials just melt away, which we'd all love to have, but they, they, we, we or they become disenchanted. We think God has abandoned us, that he doesn't love us. They walk away from the faith. It's rooted in a misunderstanding of the gospel itself and from not knowing what the Bible has to say about trials uh, that, that we do and we will endure. And God's purpose in them. But beyond the one who abandons the faith, there are those of us who have walked with Jesus for a long time. We knew that trials were going to be a part of the deal, but we're just having a hard time or a really hard time enduring it. Trials can be overwhelming, can't they? Especially when they play out over years, maybe even decades in some cases. Seemingly unanswered prayers, persecution and dark valleys, dark nights of the soul, we call it. They can really discourage our faith. This last Thursday, I visited a woman who belongs to our church body, but she lives in a board and care not far from here. And I visit her semi-regularly, and I was reading the word with her and praying. And we finished up our visit. And as I was leaving, I, I saw in the kitchen, there was one of the caregivers who I've kind of connected with and prayed with. And um, whenever I go in, she'll, she'll say, you know, oh, Father, you know, would you bless me before you leave? And, you know, they got that whole Catholic thing going on. And I'm like, yes, I'll pray for you. Let me um, <laughs> encourage you in the word. And I just went up to her and asked her, you know, how are you doing? And, you know, tears started to fill her eyes. And she said, I'm just really having a hard time. I'm discouraged. I feel hopeless. She is a woman who immigrated here years ago, has two master's degrees and a doctorate. And she, she struggles with 
Pastor, in my, in my village where I came from, my, my mom was the mayor and our, our family was very educated. I traveled to Europe and received my degrees. We, we had cooks when I was growing up, chefs, and now I'm cooking for other people and I'm just really having a hard time coming to grasp, grasp and, and grips with how my life has turned out. It's not what I imagined. How many of us, maybe, maybe you don't struggle with something that's that extreme, but you struggle with how things have turned out. It's not how you imagined. It's not what you expected. Unrealized dreams, not achieving what we'd hoped or planned for. I think that's especially acute in the United States because we're told here that we can do anything we want to do and be anything we want to be. And that's not true, is it? <laughs> you can be the best God wants you to be and you can be all that he's called and made you to be. That doesn't mean you can be everything and anything, and that's not bad either. Just trying to open up the morning with encouragement here. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. Things not working out how you'd hoped. It's one of the hardest trials to endure. It's the stuff that midlife crises are made of. Bouts of depression and anger, they're fueled by these things. A failed, stagnant, or a struggling marriage. Singleness that's lasted far longer than you ever imagined it would. A health diagnosis that's not what you'd hoped or prayed for. Loss of a loved one, loneliness, betrayal, loss of a job, chronic illness. Maybe you can relate to some of that. Now, what we're going to find is that God is with us in our trials. That's our overarching theme for the next three weeks. And that we can experience his presence and faithfulness in those dark places. And that's really key to finding freedom and, and, and release from the prison of our trials. Understanding that we can know him better in and through them. Getting to that place where we find that he is, in fact, our good shepherd. Not only on the mountaintops, not only beside the still waters and in the green pastures, but in the valley of the shadow of death. That there's a nearness we can experience with Jesus Christ that is unparalleled outside of those most difficult places in life. Which is kind of strange because we'd think to ourselves, that's not what I signed up for. When I gave my life to Jesus Christ, when I said yes to him, when I started following him, I didn't have this image in my mind of, oh, I can't wait to be uh, closest to Jesus in, in places nowhere else other, other than the hardest places in my life. I can't wait until I know him in, in the deepest intimacy there. No, we, we imagine knowing Jesus in victory and blessing and provision and miracles and God doing great works. And he does do great things in, in the hard places. But, but we don't really have our minds wired that way a lot of the time. And it sets us up for struggle. What we'll find is that his grace is sufficient and that his promises are true. That God is not only present in our trials, but he's working and he wants to work in and through them. And he wants to work in and through us. And I think that's, a, that's another side point if you're taking notes and you want to jot that down. Bonus point, all right? It's not in the outline. This message is not just for you. It's not just for me. It's not just for us. Because when we don't 
find hope in the valley, when we don't recognize God's presence, we are essentially and effectively sidelined as far as kingdom work in this life. Because really, as I said earlier, we are in bondage to our trials. We can't get past them. We can't see past them. We can't experience the liberty that Christ has for us so that we can minister to others. And we'll, we'll talk more about that later. But how to navigate through trials, it's critical. How do we traverse the valleys such that we experience his presence? That's where we're going this morning. And so why don't we pray as we get ready to make our way into the word today. Father, as we open your word, as we look at these passages, we ask that you would cause the light of your word, Lord, to be that, that sword of the spirit in our lives, like a, a scalpel in the hands of a skilled physician, that you would remove those things, those misconceptions, those false ideas, the, the, even disobedience and lack of faith in your promises. Would you remove that in favor, God, of your greater work, God, that by your word, by your Holy Spirit, you would build in our lives those good things that you want to bring about, that we would be a people who in the valleys, Lord, we find your embrace that much nearer, your presence that much more intimate, and through that, we would be empowered to serve and trust you, God, with our eyes off of ourselves and on you, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our message this morning is titled Perspective in Pain, Perspective in Pain. Merriam-Webster defines perspective as the capacity to view things in their true relations or relative importance. I like that definition. The capacity to view things in their true relations or relative importance. Chuck Swindoll, many of you listen to him on the radio or you've read his books, he writes about a time when he and his wife, Cynthia, they were living for a short while in San Francisco, and he was prone to getting lost. I, I, I enjoy San Francisco. We visited a few years and a few times over the years, and we were just there actually this last summer, did a day trip into the city, and we did the hop-on, hop-off bus. Have you been there and done that? It's a great way to see all the big sights. And we got off pretty early on, and we were going to make our way to Chinatown, which is not far from there. The bus driver said, here's Chinatown. Get off now if you want to see it. We said, yes, we want to see it. So off the bus, the hails went and made our way to Chinatown. I think first we stopped and saw the church where Whoopi Goldberg did the nun movie. But anyway, we got to Chinatown, saw all kinds of crazy mushrooms and um, legal mushrooms. <laughs> I went into a Chinese market. Anyway, this is San Francisco, right? And, and then we got lost. We got turned around. We're looking at the map. We're trying to find our way back to the bus. And, and it was kind of a little bit of a mess. Chuck Swindoll, he talked about the same experience, just getting lost all the time because of the fogs and the trolleys and the streets go this way, that way. He writes, Cynthia and I were with some friends atop the then new San Francisco Hilton. One year and things changed. I think this is, he's describing the Hilton that sits right on Union Square. Uh, perfect place if you're up high enough to look over the entire hill and the, uh, and the bay. The Hilton had over 20 stories. For the first time, the layout of the city fell into place for me because I could see it from above. Off in this direction was the Golden Gate. Over here was the Bay Bridge. Down here was Fisherman's Wharf. Over uh, there was Knob Hill and then Chinatown. Back down to the south were Daly City and, and points down the peninsula. He writes, from that perspective, we could see everything 
at once. When we're down in the valley, when we're in the midst of our problems, our trials, our difficulties, I'll just say this, it's easier said than done to get perspective, isn't it? Yeah, yes. It's hard. It's hard to get up out of that place. I've shared a couple of times. You guys know I went through cancer a few years ago, prostate cancer, and I kind of knew it was going to go in that direction. But when the doctor tells you, when you're sitting there with him, and he says, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da, and it's cancer. It's like your brain kind of shuts off at that point. And I remember making a conscious effort, like, keep listening, keep pay attention. You knew this was coming. You're going to have to be able to reiterate this, and the rest of the conversation is important. But you get lost down in the weeds of it all. And then we start, you know, dealing with everything after that and, and treatment and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. When you get bad news, when something doesn't go the way you'd hoped it would go, it just obscures everything because it's as though it's right in front of you. And the only way to get perspective is to back up and get our eyes on the Lord who is bigger, get above it get that eternal perspective. That's what we're doing this morning as we remember, first, that he has our best in mind, secondly, that he is in control, and thirdly, that he has a plan. So it's about remembering. And in trials, we do have to remind ourselves. We have to purpose to remember. It's not enough to just know it, to have learned it once. It's drawing on that truth when you need it. First of all, remember that he has our best in mind. This could be difficult to digest and live out, especially when your interpretation of best isn't what's happening. We know that theologically, doctrinally, God's word, right? Nobody has to tell you God, God, uh, God has your best in mind. We would all say, oh, yes, of course. Practically speaking, do you really believe that's what you experience all of the time? If I'm honest, I don't. God, this is your best? This can't be your best. This is the worst. This is not best. This is less than best. What did I do, Lord? What are you trying to, you know? He has our best in mind. Do you remember God's word to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah after they were taken captive by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar and dragged off to Babylon? Everybody remember Jeremiah had a word for them because they were false prophets and they were very active in Israel at that time. Sometimes the optimists are not speaking the word of God, and they were not. They said, this is going to be over soon. Israel's better days are ahead of her, and it's all going to be okay in a short while. You're going to come back from Babylon. And Jeremiah said, sorry to be a Debbie Downer. Sorry to be the wet blanket, but that is not true. You're actually going to stay there for 70 years. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. And, and after that, though, God, God's going to do something good, right? Israel was being punished, and the land was resting because they'd disregarded the law's requirement for that very thing. We're not going to be able to get into all that detail. But Israel was far from obeying God, and so God had to get their attention. He disciplined them, but it was meant for their good. Jeremiah 29, verse 10 for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place, back to the land of promise, Israel. Verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. 
then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and bring you uh, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. I appreciated when Steve prayed at the close of worship uh, that that was infused in his prayer. I thought, well, that's, that's good. That's the Holy Spirit. A future and a hope is what God has planned for us. I understand the context. I know this was an original promise to Israel. I get that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that the things that happen to Israel, they're for our learning. And this is a principle that's true for God's people. He has our good and our best, his best in mind. Our sanctification. Now, how many of you know, though, that sanctification, unfortunately, can be an unpleasant process? Sanctification, it's, I mean, justification, glorification, those are great. Sanctification, that's messy. That's painful. That's learning to love your wife when she doesn't make your coffee right or burns your toast. It's learning to love your children when they're disrespectful to you. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's being faithful in a thing when it's not fun anymore. Now, for Israel, this was spoken of in the context of discipline. Are all of our trials the result of discipline? Yes. No, no, they're not, right? They're not all the result of discipline. Every bad thing that happens to you isn't because you did something wrong. No, but the same principle holds Hardship, regardless of the source, holds the potential to be a tool for growth, depending on our response to it. And that's why perspective is so important. Am I going to choose to lean into and to trust the promises of God, or am I going to lean on my own understanding and feel free to right now apply it to the one thing you don't want to in your life? Feel free. The one thing you struggle with the most, yes, that's what this applies to. We can choose to get bitter. We can opt to walk away from the Lord like in the parable of the sower and the seed. Or we can purpose to maintain tenderness, to remain teachable in the soil of our hearts and grow. Remember Matthew 13, 8, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some of that seed from the sower, it landed in good places. I pray it does today in your life. Recognize we have control over that, over the attitudes of our hearts. Yeah, not, not, not as though the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with it. We understand. But God, by his Holy Spirit, he's not going to force you. You have to surrender. We have to submit. We have to humble ourselves. We can purpose to maintain tenderness, to remain teachable. But he who received seed, verse 23 of Matthew 13, on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. When we purpose to choose and receive what God is doing in our lives, how he is or is not working, what he's allowing or what he's withholding. 
when we trust him with that work, believing that he has our best in mind, through choosing and standing on that perspective that, that he does, in fact, have our best in mind, we grow. We understand that his purpose for us is a future and a hope. We understand that regardless of how we feel, what we have or don't have, that he's with us, that he's for us. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good. For those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, we were singing it a few minutes ago. I, I mentioned earlier that, that God will speak to us during worship if we're worshiping. <laughs> if our eyes are on him, if we're, if we're looking to gain that, that perspective our lives in his presence. What did we sing? I will make room for you to do whatever you want to. Oh? <laughs> I wonder how many of us sing that in the Lord's like, really? Because I seem to remember something else this past week as you were talking about me and my inaction or the attitudes of your heart that reflected how you really feel about what I'm doing. Your way is better, is it? Do we really think that? Shake up the walls of all my tradition. Yeah, right. You want the walls of your tradition shaken up. Do we? No, we don't. Come on. We have all kinds of golden calves that we don't want anybody to touch. I will make room for you. Frankie, get back up here. We're going to sing it again right now. No, I'm just kidding. Sit down. It's pushing through the hard stuff, saying, God, I'm going to choose to trust your word. That's where we grow. That's where we gain the right perspective. That's where our hearts are preserved from becoming a... What he doesn't want us to be. There we go. We'll just leave it at that. Our second point this morning is that we have to remember that he is in control. Remember that he, he has our best in mind and he is in control. What do we mean by this? Because this can be especially challenging to understand, let alone believe when our circumstances are very out of control. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like things are out of control? just this last week. I don't know about you, but I mean, most of my communication is by text. And text is safe. And when my wife texts me, I, it's good. When it, when it rings, I'm like, oh man. Oh. It's something where she has to talk to me in person. And it's Friday and I was studying and, and the phone rang and I was like, oh Lord, what is it? Honey. You know, when it's, when it, when it's honey and it has that tone, it's like, oh no, what is it? How much is it going to cost me, you know? Oh, do we have to hire an attorney? Let's just cut straight there. No, I'm kidding. And she said, I ran out of gas, and, you know, I'm in this really awkward place, and I'm like, okay, I'll be right there. And I get in the little car, and zoom, down there, and it was just down Lake Forest Drive. Not a big deal. And I, and I get there, and I'm trying to push her, you know, Lake Forest Drive, you know, it's pretty much, you know, you almost go backwards going up, and I'm trying to push her car, and... <laughs> And, you know, take off the brakes now. And so we're trying to push. And as we're doing that, I'm not there for 60 seconds. And this tow truck pulls over. And I'm like, that is just the fastest AAA response ever. 
and he's towing a car, and not the, tri- not the tow truck driver, but the other guy jumps out, and he's like, can we give you a hand? And I'm like, what are you, weird? You know, you're not even the driver, and you're wanting to help us, and the tow truck driver comes around, and he goes, do you, do you need help pushing? And I'm like, oh, we're out of gas, and I'm like, are you the AAA guy? And he goes, well, yeah, but I'm not the one your wife called. He gets the thing of gas and, and pours it in, and I mean, it was, it was taken care of in a moment, Right? That's how it always goes in my life. I never, no, I'm just kidding. No, it's not. Yeah, we have car accidents that don't go great. We have cars blow up and bad things happen more often than not. It was kind of a reminder, though, that God is in control. It was a little 10-minute exercise while I was studying for the Lord to just remind me. Have you ever noticed with trials, sometimes you have to back up, get perspective, and just thank the Lord for how it happened? Thank you, God, that you were in control. Have you had that before? The the wrong thing happened from our perspective, but at least it went this way. Thank you, God, that you showed that you were in control in the midst of it. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Isaiah 46, verse 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Revelation 1.8, John recorded these words of Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Again, we read from Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth and by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing, excuse me, nothing too hard for you. God is in control. He's in control of your life and mine. But we might rightly ask, well, (laughs) if he is, why do things seem so out of control in my life? Where is he? What is he doing after all? Why isn't everything coming together for me? How hard is it to line up a job for me, a mate, to wrangle down that difficult child of mine, to heal me? Can God not spare energy to work on my behalf? In answer to those questions, we're going to take a moment and remember the life of Joseph, youngest son, youngest favored son of the patriarch Jacob or Israel. His story begins in Genesis chapter 37. Many of you, you've studied Genesis. Our ladies, you're going to get there eventually. But we're introduced to Joseph, and he's, he's the youngest and was the favorite. And, and he was hated by his brothers. He received the dreams and visions, of course, that projected out to the future where, where they would actually serve him, and they didn't like that. So much so, excuse me, so much so that they sold him as a slave, wanted to initially leave him in a pit for dead. But you move out to the end of his life, to the good part. His father, brothers, and family have all immigrated from Canaan to the land of Goshen in Egypt. They're provided for because of the wisdom and foresight God had given to Joseph. Remember, God had told Joseph the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream that there would be seven years of Plenty followed by seven years of famine and least the Egyptians set aside in the years of plenty. They'd have nothing in the time of famine. And so they did that. And in the latter seven years, they were preserved, but also the surrounding people groups, including Israel in her infancy when she was just a family. Clearly, God had a plan 
for Joseph's life. He used Joseph, but there was a cost, a great cost to Joseph. How did Joseph feel about that? Was he bitter? Again, he'd been hated and, and left for dead by his brothers, sold as a slave, trafficked into Egypt, falsely accused by someone in power, imprisoned. Joseph had a lot of baggage from the, from the pit to the prison to the palace. If anyone had an excuse for struggling with bitterness and unforgiveness, if anyone had a right to question whether or not God cared or was in control, it was Joseph, whose life seemed to be the very picture of out of control, abandoned by God. So how did Joseph react when he had the opportunity to take matters into his own hands? Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to themselves, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil that we did to him. Now the dad's out of the way. There's nothing stopping Joseph from taking out vengeance. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before our father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. They weren't trusting God. So they said, well, let's come up with this story. The dad on his deathbed wanted us to, to beg on his behalf that Joseph would have mercy on us. And so that's what they said. Now, how did Joseph respond? To, the, to these guys who had connived and wrecked and ruined his life. And now we're wanting to lie again at this point after he's bailed him out and taken good care of him. Verse 17, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In my opinion, this is one of the single most powerful passages in the whole of the Bible. And if you struggle with forgiveness as it relates to perspective in trials, this is a place for you to meditate. Verse 19, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Two things. Joseph knew that he wasn't God. We kind of imagine that sometimes. We put ourselves in that place of authority in our trials sometimes. We, we have a high estimation of ourselves. But he trusted that God was in control. He saw that and it liberated him to forgive those who had hurt him. He wasn't at the mercy of those who hated him. He was at God's mercy. And don't make the mistake of thinking that just because Joseph was powerful and wealthy that he didn't care anymore. Because some of us might look at it and go, yeah, but Joseph got what he wanted. Joseph was on top. He was powerful. No more problems in his life. It, <laughs> the more responsibility you have, the more problems you have. I'm sure Joseph had plenty of problems. But, but the, his biggest issue 
he was able to surrender to the Lord because he, he recognized that God was in control, that he wasn't in the place of God, that he had no business withholding forgiveness. Joseph had matured to a place where he'd gained a perspective that freed him to minister despite and through the pain that he'd endured. I want us to notice something in verse 21. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones, and he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See what happened in Joseph's life as he gained the right perspective, as he forgave, as he trusted in God, as the Lord liberated him from being in bondage to all of this, he was able to bring comfort to others. Isn't that what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Hope in the valley, God's presence in our trials. When you and I receive God's comfort, His consolation, His mercies in our trials, we're not just able to minister to and comfort others, we are called to. It is incumbent on us to manage our trials rightly so that we can fulfill and assume the ministry that we have been called to. Not to selfishly camp out and nest on our troubles, but instead to surrender to God, to trust Him, to receive comfort and be used by Him to comfort others. He comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, and they do, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Knowing that God is in control is a starting point for being free to trust Him with our pain and experience the freedom to forgive and then be used by Him to minister and comfort those similarly struggling. This brings us to our final point this morning, and that is our need to remember His plan. Remember His plan. Remember, he has our best in mind. Remember, he is in control. And remember, he does have a plan. It's found in James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Count it all joy. Does this mean some denial of reality? Must I confess what I don't feel? I've heard some, some teachers talk about that. I just have to declare it, speak it, proclaim it. Is that what this is about? Is it okay to be mad, to hurt, to grieve, experience loss, maybe even be mad at God? I believe that God is perfectly capable of shouldering our natural reactions. Sometimes I think it's a little silly when we don't do that. And, and, and we're, we're parroting verses, but it's not coming from faith. It's coming from 
a, a faith-absent obedience. We just don't want to say it, maybe because we don't want to sweat it. We don't want to walk through the pain of having to admit it's as bad as it is. I believe God's capable of walking with us through that difficulty, but he then does call us to faith. And if we're to grow, we have to stretch ourselves to trust him and to walk in the truth of his word and his promises, despite how we feel or what we think. Because one day we'll stand before him in eternity and we'll not only feel foolish for having held on to our grievances and ignorances, despite his abundant mercy and grace toward us, but we'll have missed out on fruitfulness that could have been ours. And some people miss out on lengthy seasons in their lives of fruitfulness because they refuse to trust God. Don't waste the life that you've been given arguing and wrestling with a God who's redeemed you from your brokenness. Choose to trust him. Set your eyes on heaven. Walk in the freedom of his great plan. As we close, I just want to highlight five things from James chapter 1. First of all, choose joy. Count it all joy. We just spent months talking about joy in, in the book of Philippians. Take relevance, not in your pain or misfortune, but in a God who has promised you good in it, who has your best in mind, the one to whom you belong. Your identity is in him. He's prepared a place for you, a mansion that one day you're going to inhabit in glory. Secondly, consider the outcome, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. God has a good end in mind, intended, not just in the eternal and eventual sense, but in the short term. Understand that like Joseph, God has that in mind. He intends to build in you and I endurance, grace, and strength that we might be better equipped to weather other storms that are coming with the wisdom and ability as well to help those around us successfully navigate the same. Thirdly, calculate the process. Let patience have its perfect work, James writes. Don't give up. Maturity can't be rushed. Joseph would never have been able to do anything we find in the latter chapters of Genesis if he hadn't endured what took place in 37 and 39, if he hadn't walked through those hard places that no doubt lasted years. Growth happens in the valleys. Fourthly, choose maturity, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Purpose to grow. Don't fight against the process that God's using through your pain and trial to grow you up. In other words, whatever it is that right now, if you had the power to change, but you don't, so you can't, <laughs> whatever it is you'd love to get around, to take a shortcut to over and around the mountain, to not have to deal with it, choose to embrace it and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I want to trust you. I want to ask you to do the work in me that I can't do on myself, the work that, frankly, I'm resisting if I were being honest and not religious. 
God, you do your best. Your word says that you cause all things to work together for good. Do it with this. I want to surrender to you. Cry out for help. It's the fifth point. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Yeah, I know this message, it, it kind of begs the question, but how? It's hard. The weight to lift up under this and reach out and grab hold of the promises of God. Cry out to God. Ask him. He says he'll give you wisdom. He'll equip you. How are you looking at your trials and pain today? With what perspective are we viewing our hardships? We can choose to see our problems, our lack, our issues only from the angle of, of how we're suffering, how it's hurting and inconveniencing us, how we're offended. Or we can choose to fix our eyes on Jesus. Perspective. Perspective. I read that a shoe manufacturer who was looking to break in to the shoe market in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo when it was first uh, no longer a, uh, a colony, I believe it was back that far back, underdeveloped territory. One salesman cabled back, one of the two that were sent from this shoe company. Prospect here, nil. No one wears shoes. The other salesman reported enthusiastically, market potential terrific. Everyone is barefoot. Sometimes we need that perspective shift in our lives where we step away from seeing how everything's going wrong to recognizing I serve a God who wants to bring right from what's wrong, who wants to make me better, not bitter, who wants to make me strong in my weakness. Sometimes healing can begin when we see opportunity where before we saw only roadblocks and failure. One more story as we close. It's said that during World War II, General Creighton Abrams, the man for whom the M1 Abrams tank was named, found himself and his troops surrounded on all sides. With characteristic optimism, he told his officers, for the first time in the history of this campaign, we are now in a position to attack the enemy in any direction. <laughs> I love that. I know it can be hard to laugh in the middle of our trials. But there's health in gaining a renewed perspective, in seeing things from heaven's view, and reminding ourselves of all that God is able to do, in spite of, uh, through, and even because of the hardship that we've endured. I think of so many of the saints that I've been ministered to over the ages Corey Ten Boom. <laughs> you want to pay the price she paid for the ministry she had? I don't. Brother Andrew, Hudson Taylor, many others, luminaries of the Christian faith. They had to walk through deep, deep valleys. And so many in the scripture that we'll be getting to know. God had to break Joseph, he had to take him through terrible pain. But through that pain, he was able to save whole nations and give that man the heart of one who was willing to comfort those who before were his enemies. God wants to do the same and more through you and I. Why don't you stand with me as we close our time? Let's pray. Father, 
we want to choose to trust you. We, we confess and we admit that this is not easy. And Lord, we, we want to surrender and we want to yield to you and say yes to you. So this morning, if there's something that, that you've been wrestling with and it's, it's just got a hold of your heart and it's strangling growth and faith and love, the Holy Spirit is, is trying to break through and you just keep saying no. This isn't for me, really it's for you. I just encourage you to lift up your hand as acknowledgement of that surrendering to God. Maybe both hands if you need to. If that's you, I just encourage you to Surrender to him. Father, I pray for these that would just say, yes, Lord, I need to surrender. And I pray that you'd meet them in this place, Father. Your power, it's made perfect in our weakness where we confess and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You meet us there and you work. And I pray that you would here today. God, I pray that you would give each of us perspective, Lord, perspective in our pain to understand that you are able, that you love us, that you're good. We want to surrender to you. We want to trust you, God. We want to pray that you would do more, exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. We do that now as we purpose and choose to worship you in Jesus' name.